Show number 21 of I Read Comics with LT. It's been so long. You know, it occurred to me that I should probably just say a few words about why I don't have a comics podcast out every week. And it's not because I don't love you, because I do. And I would love to do a comics podcast every week, but my life is really busy. And I do the Trek podcast every week. Actually, I don't do it every week. Is that when I get together with my co-host, JK, we actually record two shows at the same time. And then just, I put them up (laughs) in that interval. Um, and the only reason that I do that so regularly is because she bugs me. And when I'm doing this show by myself, I don't have anybody bugging me. So I have to try to fit it in with everything else. And I have a job, a day job that I work really hard at. And I believe it or not, I do have a social life. You know, I, I have friends that I like to see and other things and, and I'm reading stuff constantly. So it's not like I don't have anything to talk about. I've got lots of stuff, but it's just hard to fit it in. And then Like you, there are some nights when I really just don't feel like doing anything, like tonight. Tonight is a Saturday, and tonight's the night that they show, like, I don't know how many episodes of Law & Order on the USA channel, and I love that show, and even though I've seen them all, I could just sit and watch them all for, like, six or seven hours and sit in my bed and, you know, eat peanuts and drink a bottle of beer, and sometimes that's what I do instead of doing a podcast, so... Anyway, I really wanted to get another show out because I do have a bunch of really good stuff. So I want to talk about WonderCon, which was last weekend, to tell you all how that was, and then to talk about some things that I got from the library, some old stuff, some new stuff, and um, a couple of really special books that you probably haven't heard of. So I'd love to introduce you to something new. So let's start with WonderCon. WonderCon was last weekend in San Francisco, as it always is. The people who run WonderCon are the same people who run Comic-Con, which is in San Diego, and they also run APE, which is the Alternative Press Expo. And it used to be that APE was held in February and WonderCon was held in um, April or whenever they hold it. And like three years ago, they started switching them. And um, everybody seems to feel like whatever gets held in February is the better show. So ever since they started doing WonderCon in February, it's been like a better thing. And Ape last year, which was in April, um, I went to with Ginger and it just, it wasn't as good. For some reason, it just felt like the energy level wasn't there. And maybe it's because it's too close to Comic-Con. I'm not really sure why. Or maybe it's because in April, the weather's just nicer and people are off doing other things. But in any case, um, I'm going to try to go to Ape this year because there are people that I'd like to see and things that I want to pick up. But WonderCon was really cool. It was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It was held at Moscone Center West, and if you've ever been to the convention centers in San Francisco, Moscone Center is is like gigantic, and it's two sides of um, the street where it's on. Moscone Center West is really new, and it's a smaller place. I actually felt like it was friendlier, it was brighter, it didn't feel as cavernous, and um, didn't have that kind of weird trade show, um, you know, like there had been dentists there the week before, and I I don't know, I always get that feeling in Moscone, 
Um, it's a little overwhelming, but this was nice. It, it was definitely a smaller space, but they had it was very well set up. It was nice and clean and bright and easy to get to. You know, the BART train takes you right there and just walk down the street, and there you are. And uh, I got a press pass from the very nice people who organized it because apparently podcasts are real media now, so that was cool. And unfortunately, because of the other things going on in my life, I was only able to go on Friday, so I missed a lot of the hoopla that was happening on Saturday and Sunday, including a lot of the special guests like Frank Miller and Kevin Smith and Brian Singer and stuff like that. But that wasn't why I went. I mean, the reason that I went was to look around, to look at all the booths that were there and to buy some stuff, which I did, but also to meet up with people that I had planned on meeting up with and hadn't actually met in person. So I got to meet... um, Rory Root, who is the guy who owns and runs Comic Relief, the fabulous comic book store in Berkeley, and I'm definitely going to be setting up an interview with him in the next week or so. So we actually got to chat quite a bit, and I kept saying, Rory, Rory, stop, save it for the show, because he was saying just incredibly interesting things. He's been doing this forever, and he has an amazing perspective on comic books and comic book buyers, the industry, on stores, and I I just can't wait to, to get him on the show and ask him all this stuff. So that was cool. Um, I also got to meet um, Carl Christian, who does Schadenfreude and now has a Byron comic out. And I got to see him in person, which was great. Got to meet his beautiful and wonderful girlfriend and got to buy some issues of Byron, which I actually haven't read yet, but I will soon. And I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about that in an upcoming show. So that was cool. He was such a nice guy. And then I got to meet Dan Cooney, who does a, a, a self-published comic. He has a press called Red Eye Press called Valentine. And I got the trade of that. He very, very kindly gave it to me. And I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to. And as soon as I've read it and digested it, talked about it, I'm going to have him on the show and interview him as well. The Artist Alley was really pretty cool this year. Um, since I got there pretty early on Friday, a lot of the people who were there did not have long lines around them. Like Peter David was there just kind of chatting with a couple of people. And the one guy that I got to meet who incredibly didn't have a line was Ernie Chan, or Chua, who used to do the um, art on the Savage Sword of Conan. Of course, being a Conan freak, I knew who he was. And it was so cool to meet him. I mean, Ernie fucking Chan, you know? And he was really nice, and he has a book that I bought a copy of, and he inscribed it to me, so that was cool, too. But, wow, the people who were there, just in Artist Alley, it was awesome, really, really good. And and lots of other people there who were just kind of hanging out and chatting, so that was great. The only weird thing about Artist Alley was that at the far, far corner of it were the porn stars, um, women with their giant inflatable tits, and they were selling naked pictures of themselves and kind of... um, hawking their their scantily clad wares I guess and it was really funny the way they were all clustered down at the end and I didn't really realize it as I was walking up and down the aisles and it was like I made this left turn and suddenly I was in porn land it was really weird and of course being a woman I'm walking through it and they're looking at me like why are you here so that was pretty funny and and I guess there were you know they had their fans or whatever but I, I just think it's so weird that they have that at a comic book convention so, I don't know. I guess if they're making money, it's okay, but not really where you want the kids to be. And um, speaking of kids, there were a lot of people with kids, which was cool. There were a lot of women there. Oh, my God, it was so cool. And it wasn't just girls with their boyfriends who were being dragged with, like, that look on their face like they just sniffed kitty litter or something. No, it was actual girls who looked like they were actually enjoying themselves. I saw moms with their teenage daughters. That was so awesome. <laughs> to quote Logan, it was totally awesome. Um, I saw 
dads with their daughters. I saw, you know, girls in twos and threes who were looking at stuff, and they weren't just looking at the manga stuff. They were looking at everything and looking pretty comfortable walking around. So that was really cool. And I don't know whether that's because it's in San Francisco, which, you know, is the west most liberal point in the United States or what, but it was cool anyway. So, yay Comic-Con. Um, if you want to know about all the, the hoopla stuff, you can just browse around on, on the web and everybody's got all their special reports on that kind of stuff. But um, just as a regular con-goer, I thought it was a great con. And for those of you who live in the area, I would definitely suggest going next year when they have it. It'll probably be more or less same time, same channel. So, yay WonderCon. Um, and I, I did buy a whole bunch of stuff, which I will be talking about in, in future episodes, some of which I bought based on recommendations from listeners. And I did get to meet one of my listeners, Robert Chung, and it was really cool. He just kind of walked up and said, I heard you overheard you talking to somebody. Are you who I think you are? So that was neat. Thanks, Robert. And thanks for the um, stuff that you might be sending me. So let me take a quick break and then come back to the stuff that I've been reading, which is mostly stuff from the library. And once again, this is going to be the show where it's like, I finally got around to reading stuff that you guys all read years and years ago. And that's always a fun thing. feels like Marvel and DC week here at my house because that's mostly what I've been reading. I have to say something really funny though. Um, <laughs> I get a lot of spam at my email address, my Lena at troubledscience.com account, just because it's out there on the web. It's on my website. It's in other places. I've posted to groups and stuff. So I get lots of crap. And occasionally the crap actually intersects with things that I like. So this just cracked me the hell up. Um, I get lots of spam, as you probably do, from these companies that are trying to make you buy stock um, because they want you to, they want everybody to buy it so that the people who own it to start with, the price will be pumped up and then they'll sell all their shares and make lots of money and you will be left with nothing. Pump and dump is what it's called. So I, I get stuff like this every, every day. And this time I got one, let me see when I got it. It was a couple of weeks ago. It was on uh, February 4th. And what it is, is a solicitation, not really a solicitation, it's more like a fake press release, from POW Entertainment, and it says, POW Entertainment procures the exclusive rights to the Stan Lee name and brand. So it's an announcement saying that Stan Lee's company, which is called POW Entertainment, has acquired the exclusive rights and ownership in perpetuity to the name Stan Lee, his likeness, brand, and signature slogans. Stan Lee presents Excelsior and Stan's Soapbox. Wow. And it just goes on to say what a great guy he is and that he's finally got the rights back from Marvel to his name and how cool this is and blah, 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 blah. And it just goes on for a whole page like that. Um, and why, why are they telling me this? Well, they're going public and they want me to buy stock in Stanley's company. Now, given Stanley's history of business things, I'm not too sure that I want to invest in anything that has his name attached to it. Um, as much as Marvel is doing right now, uh, 
merchandising all their all his characters, I should say, his and Jack Kirby's characters. I don't quite know about this, but it just really, really cracked me up that I was getting, um, you know, internet market, stock market spam about Stanley and Marvel Comics. Really, really funny. So, um, as it says here on on the email that. Um, Statements in this press release are not sta- that are not statements of historical or current fact um, constitute forward-looking statements, and um, they may have unknown risks to them. So I'm not telling you to go out and buy stock in this company. I'm just reporting on a piece of spam that I got. So if you buy this stock and something bad happens, do not come back to me. <laughs> I assume absolutely no responsibility for any statements about POW Entertainment. Anyway, um... To continue in the Marvel thread, so I got another copy of Ultimate Spider-Man, and this was actually the one before the last one I talked about because somehow I missed a, a volume. And someone, one of my listeners, very kindly explained to me that the numbering for the soft cover and the hard covers were different, and that's where I got confused, which for me is not a hard thing to do. Um, so this was the one where he um, meets Green Goblin for the first time, like really fights him and finds out who he was. Um, I'm looking right here. This is issues 22 to 27, and this was published back in 2003. So um, it was a lot of catching up on storylines. I have to say I'm really getting tired of the way Mark Bagley draws the, the characters with the anime eyes, the giant eyes and the shiny hair. It's like, whoa, I am really, really tired of it. I love the way he draws monsters and bad guys. Oh my god, it's so good. I love the way he draws the Green Goblin. It's beautiful. So maybe they could get Mark Bagley to draw the bad guys and the monsters and get somebody else to draw the actual characters because they're just bugging the hell out of me. Um, And I really am starting to hate the way he draws the girls. And I say girls even though he draws them like women. And I pointed this out last time that, you know, Gwen Stacy looks like a 45-year-old Denny's waitress. And uh, she's introduced in these stories, I guess. And even when she's introduced, she looks like a 45-year-old Denny's waitress. And I expect her to have that Harvey Firestein Firestein voice. Um, So I think the big plot twist in this one, of course, is that uh, the Green Goblin grabs Mary Jane and drops her from the bridge instead of dropping Gwen Stacy from the bridge like he did in the old Spider-Man. And that's when Gwen Stacy died. And I told you before, I wasn't really sad about that happening. Um, So, yeah, he drops Mary Jane, but she doesn't die. Spidey saves her. Although, I have to say, looking at the way he saves her, so Green Goblin drops um, MJ from, I guess it's the Brooklyn Bridge, and she's falling and falling and falling, and he grabs, he zaps her foot with webbing, and it would seem to me that if she was falling that fast, that him grabbing her leg like that and pulling her up would pretty much wrench her leg out of its socket. That's got to be painful. She would have some kind of spinal damage there, I think. Okay, so that's just me complaining. Um, One other thing I really need to complain about, and I don't know whose fault this is, but I really hate it and I want it to stop now, is that in the dialogue balloons, when someone is crying... And this happened when Gwen was hysterical in the other book that I was reading. And it happens here in sort of the aftermath of all this when Mary Jane is is hugging Peter. And she's supposed to be crying, like hysterically crying. But the words in the word balloons make it sound like she's throwing up. Like it's spelled... I have to spell it for you because I can't even quite read it. She says... O, and that's got a whole bunch of O's and then an H, and then it reads like this, A-G-U-G-H-G-U-H. 
which to me is not a crying sound. That's a that's a that's a yakking sound. And I don't think that's really appropriate here. You know, she's crying, there are tears running down her face, and I'm just waiting for her to hurl all over his his Spider-Man costume. So I really want them to find a different way to represent the crying sound. And I'm perfectly okay with doing the cliched sniffing and kind of catching, voice catching in the throat sort of things that you always see in comic books. But honestly, the throwing up noises, it's got to stop. And I do realize that I'm talking about comics that were written, you know, three years ago. (laughs) I know that. I'm just saying, okay? So anyhow, um, it continues. I'm going to the library tomorrow. I'm going to see if I can get um, whatever's next. I'm going to keep reading them because I'm just curious to see how this is all dealt with. Everything about the Green Goblin, you know, that stuff's pretty interesting. I, I like the twist that Bendis is putting on it. I think it's a... It's getting better for me from the first, like, I don't know, 10 issues or so where I felt like there wasn't really a whole hell of a lot happening. So this is cool. Uh, All right, so that's that one. And then the next thing in the Marvel Universe, I'll just do all the Marvel stuff now, is something you all read 10 years ago, which is Marvels. And this is a trade paperback that collects the issues that were done by um, Busick and Alex Ross. And... I didn't even know about this. I know. I'm a moron. What can I tell you? I was in the library. I saw it. I grabbed it. And I was like, oh, Alex Ross. And then I read it and I started reading about it and I realized what it was. And man, this is so cool. Um, there are things that I really, 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 really like about it. And there are things that I, I am just not so crazy about. I think this is the first um, really long exposure to Alex Ross that I've had in this, this kind of context. And, you know, it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. His stuff, his painterly stuff, you know, it's just so different from everything else. It's, as they always say, it's photorealistic. And some of the images that he does are are just amazing. And it's really interesting to see the way he reinterprets the art that was, uh, in a lot of cases, done by Jack Kirby and, and other artists, too, of the early Marvel years. So it's it's really neat. Um, and in this particular trade version, um, let me see if I can read the copyright date on this one. There's some... Uh, oh, this came out in 2001. So there's some stuff at the end here um, about how he does it, and there's photographs of the models that he used for some of the images, and it, it's really neat uh, to see. I always like those making of things that are in there, and how cute that, you know, he used his parents as the models for these things. Um, that being said, it is a little disturbing when you're recognizing real people's faces in the characters that he's doing, and I'm not the first one to point this out, but, you know, Reed Richards is the professor from Gilligan's Island, and that was totally jarring to me when I saw it. I was like, oh, Russell Johnson, whoa, why is he Reed Richards all of a sudden? Okay, that was a little weird. Um, and then Don Knotts pops up, and B. Arthur pops up, and other people pop up in here. I'm just like, whoa, how strange. It's not quite on the level of, you know, um, top ten and in jokes where everything is a reference to something else, but it is just a little bit disturbing. Um, the one thing about his art that kind of struck me is that for me, it totally takes these stories out of the comic book realm and puts it into, now it doesn't put it into real life for me. That's the other part about it that really didn't connect. You know, I know what the purpose of this was, right? It's to 
take the man on the street, who literally is the man on the street, this guy, Phil Sheldon, who's a photojournalist, and tell everything from his point of view. So what if you had been living in New York when all this wild stuff was happening, when all of the Marvel characters were around starting, you know, in the late 30s, early 40s, right up until the 60s or the 70s, right smack in the middle of the Silver Age, you know? What if you had been a person who saw fights in the sky and the Fantastic Four trying to deal with Galactus and the Silver Surfer actually there? It's a great concept, but because of Ross's style, I never really felt like this was happening to the characters. It's For me, I know this is going to sound really weird, but looking at some of the art, to me, is like looking at Michelangelo stuff in the Sistine Chapel, when he does these representations of biblical events, they're not meant to be photorealistic in that way. They're more like these epic representations. And yeah, they look like real people. And yeah, the amount of detail is incredible. You know, you see the the wrinkles and the lines on the costumes, and you see the details in the hair and in the skin and in the fingers. But it's all done on such a grand scale that I, I was feeling one step removed from everything that was happening in it. Beautiful, epic stuff, but not not of this earth. And the story didn't help because I, you know, Phil is the guy in the street, but I could never really get into his character. I couldn't really care about him that much. He becomes very obsessed about halfway through the book and he's pulling away from his wife and his children and I just couldn't really come to grips with his character. I couldn't feel really involved with what was going on with him. Um, the things that did touch me were things that involved him kind of peripherally, like when he and his family find this little mutant girl in the beginning of the, the story arc about the X-Men. But I felt much more for the little girl than I did for him. You know, I, I didn't feel like he was totally there as a character. His daughters are kind of not... They're like ciphers, you know. They're there, but they don't really do anything. And his wife is just going... Actually, she's very interesting in the beginning because um, he doesn't feel like he can marry her, and so she immediately dumps him, which I thought was so cool. You know, she didn't beg or plead or whine or anything. She just was like, okay, bye, see you later. And she's really great, but then as the book goes on, she's sort of reduced to saying, we never see you anymore, and and that's about it. And I, I really wish there had been more done with her. Um, the, the spreads though, that the Alex Ross pages, when there are single pages that have these huge images over them where the double page spreads are just amazing, you know, ah, they're so beautiful. So I really did get an awful lot of enjoyment over just looking at the images, you know, looking at this picture where the old human torch and Namor are fighting over the Brooklyn bridge. And, oh, it's just a beautiful image. Also big kudos to him for not putting any pants on Namor because why would he wear pants? That seems kind of silly. So um, that was my reaction to Marvels. Really very cool. And okay, and I have one other complaint that I'll voice right now, which is only that if you want to understand all of the stories that are happening to the characters, if you're not like so into Marvel, if you're not a complete and total Marvel zombie and know everything about it, you're going to have to go to Wikipedia and look this stuff up, which was what I had to do in almost every case. Even though I know a lot of this stuff, I just couldn't remember. It's like, okay, I know about Fantastic Four. I know about Galactus. I know about Silver Surfer. Oh, wait, the Avengers stuff. Oh, it's been so long since I read Avengers. I've totally forgotten. It's been so long since I read Iron Man. Why is the Senate calling him? Oh, I have to go look it up now. 
And it, it started to feel like a bit of a chore after a while to get filled in on it. And maybe the point isn't that you need to be filled in on it, because if you were the person on the street, maybe you wouldn't be informed about all that kind of stuff, and it would still just be this huge spectacle going on in the sky. But I wanted to try and remember or try and understand why things were happening with the marvels the way that they were. And when I, I couldn't remember and I couldn't figure it out and I had to go look it up, it just felt like I, I was doing an awful lot of backfilling on my own. And, you know, I'm lazy, so I don't like to do that kind of stuff. So anyway, there you go for Marvels. Um, I'm sure all of you read Marvels. <laughs> I'm sure all of you enjoyed it because it is really good. I wondered about whether I would actually want to buy this just to have the art, and maybe I would eventually. Um, you know, it's really funny. I'm looking at this copy that I have, which, as I said, I got from the library. And, boy, is it a well-thumbed copy. It's clearly been checked out by a lot of people, and that makes me really happy. Glad to hear it. Okay, let's take a little musical break, and then I'm going to come back with the uh, DC portion of the show. So, hang on. guys are not going to believe that I never read this, but, you know, here I am, coming late to the party, as always. What did I get from the library? Dark Knight Returns. I never read it, <laughs> but I read it now, so I'm caught up. This is the 10th anniversary trade paperback edition, <laughs> which, you know, is uh, published in, oh, 96, so now it's 10 years after that, so just a little bit late to the party. Anyway, I just never got around to reading it, and I heard all this stuff about it, and I know how much it influenced, you know, the whole fucking world, but now I finally read it. And, of course, it's great. It's really good. I had no idea what to expect from this at all. all the only thing I knew about it was that it was a dark, gritty take on Batman. And, yeah, it sure is a dark, gritty take on Batman, but it takes so many weird twists and turns that I never expected it to take. And the art is really amazing. Now, okay, you guys have all read Dark Knight Returns. I know you have. And you've read, you know, enough exposition about Dark Knight Returns that I don't think I have a whole lot of original stuff to say. So I'm just going to talk about the things that I really liked about it that made it very compelling for me. First of all, the art. So Frank Miller's art is 
just the weirdest thing in the entire world. I started reading it, and I'm like flipping through the first couple of pages, and I'm thinking, this looks like really weird, sort of um, Mad Magazine cartoony style drawings, like a little bit of Sergio Aragones and a little bit of some other stuff, and it it just didn't look serious. And the way he draws. Um, the secondary and tertiary characters, they're like throwaways, you know, they're goofy looking, they look like cartoon, literally cartoon characters, not even comic book characters, but cartoon characters, they got like strange features, and and they're exaggerated, their postures are exaggerated, their features are exaggerated, it's just kind of weird, so I wasn't quite sure what to make of that, and you know, of course, you get into the the really dramatic portions of it, and, and it's like just so incredibly well done and then of course there's the giant splash page where batman comes back for the first time and he's shown from below as he's kind of leaping down and he's this greek god of a figure i mean oh my god this is so amazing and i was really struck by that in all of the images of batman where he takes up one page all by himself he's just drawn as this massive massive figure not really human and that was the thing that I, I really took away from this, is that Bruce Wayne is a human being, but Batman is not. He's something other than human. And it seems like as the, the, the issues go through, and I'll say the book, I get further and further into the book, he becomes bigger. He just grows. You know, how could a, a person be this this huge, you know, tall and muscular and just really not human at all. I love the fact that Frank Miller does not attempt to be like Rob Liefeld and draw every muscle and every sinew in there. And that is such a powerful thing. He he does so much more with so much less. It's just Batman's size and bulk and the sort of ruthless expression on his face. And of course, you can't even really see most of his face. You just see his chin and his the way he grits his teeth. But Oh, unbelievable. Um, There's one panel sort of late in the book after Batman has had a a really intense physical fight and he's back at the Wayne Manor in the the Batcave and he's being patched up by Alfred and uh, Robin. And I really love the fact that Robin's a girl. That's pretty cool. Um, And she's sort of clinging to him and he... I guess is supposed to be naked or just wearing his underwear or something. And she's just really happy that he's still alive. And the way it's drawn, he looks like a statue that's carved out of marble. His body is so big and still and um, gray, I guess. I mean, his skin is really a gray tone. And of course, Robin's wearing her little colorful outfit there. And just the contrast of her against him like that is really amazing. So I think what what I was really getting out of this was how Batman is this more than human and yet less than human at the same time because he doesn't feel sympathy. He's completely obsessed, you know, as his buddy Superman says, you know, Bruce, you're obsessed with this and you're making the rest of us, making it hard for the rest of us to function. Um... He, he's just this other character, and I love that about it, that he, he really is portrayed as this this other other being. Um, and I noticed that as the book goes on, too, when Bruce Wayne is drawn, he's starting to look weirder as as <laughs> whatever is happening is happening. You know, at the, the very beginning, you still sort of see Bruce Wayne, the, the handsome playboy guy, and then by the end of it, he's just looking so freaky 
You know, his face is, is contracting. His head is still huge, but all his features are like clustered near the middle of his face and his eyebrows are really black and he just looks really merciless. He doesn't really look angry. He just looks merciless and that's even scarier. Um, so I'm not going to bother recounting the whole plot of this. Um, it's really cool to see him tangling with the people he usually tangles with, including the Joker. And I thought the whole Joker plot line was incredibly well done. Although I question the ability of someone to, you know, break their own neck, but whatever, it's comic book. Um, the whole Sons of Batman thing, the SOBs, that was pretty cool and interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, the other folks that he runs into and, and then his whole... I don't want to call it a showdown. It is kind of like a showman, showdown with Superman. And uh, Miller points out, I guess in the introduction or somewhere along here, that nobody ever calls Superman Superman. When Bruce is talking to him, he calls him Clark. And when the government is talking to him, they call him Kent. So clearly he's Superman. And, and what happens to him, he, the fact that he almost dies because he doesn't have the power of the, the sun for a little while, that's really neat too. Um, also really classic that when... Um, the bomb explodes and the sun's blotted out for a while. That Batman is on horseback, you know, the Dark Knight. I thought, how literal! He managed to actually pull that off and, and make it real. So, wow, this is really, really good. Um, really violent, you know. All of the physical violence is very, very gritty and, and really well portrayed. Not a lot of shooting, but when the shooting happens, it's really shocking and unexpected. I was trying to. I was thinking about. Whether it's a a male comic, a really male-oriented comic, there aren't a lot of women who play central roles in it, except Robin. There's Selina, Catwoman, but she's not in it very much. There's uh, Lana Lang, who's a newscaster. There's uh, Lola Chung, who's another newscaster. And the chief of police, who's a woman, Ellen Yindel. So there are women who are in it. There are no women with giant inflatable tits, which is great. I'm really happy about that. I didn't feel like this was such a masculine comic book that I couldn't get into it. It didn't put me off. The violence didn't put me off at all. And I don't have a particularly high tolerance for violence. I don't like to watch things that are really horribly violent. But I thought that the violence in here was well done. Um, and it wasn't presented as acceptable. You know, Batman is sadistic. And, and it, we're not meant to admire that about him. We're meant to look at that and go, wow. That's really over the top, and and I felt like it wasn't a celebration of violence so much as, gosh, it's so hard to, to say. You know, you see Batman's point of view. You see why he feels the way he does and why he thinks that this is his the only way to cope with all of the evil that's happening, but you also see that it's not the solution to the problem. Superman's not the solution to the problem either because he's working for the government. What is the solution? I don't know that there is a solution. I don't think Frank Miller tells us that there is a solution. Despite all of Batman's efforts with his, his minions, the sons of Batman, it doesn't eliminate crime. It drops it. But it's only in one city. It's not like a wave of peace spreads over the country. It, there's just a lot of really interesting and complex issues in it. And I know you guys have heard this all before from everybody else who's ever read it. So you can just like tune out until I'm done yakking about this. But anyhow... Um, yeah, it's it's really, really good. I know that he did a sequel to this, which I heard was not so well received, and I haven't seen it, but if the library has it, I'll probably check it out. Now, I did have to mention one thing. At the back, there is the script for the last 
chapter or, or the last installment of this. And this, it's interesting to see how Miller deviated from the script that he had originally written to what was eventually published. There are also some sketches in here. And this, I thought, was just such an interesting comment. In his drawing of Batman, who in this sketch is much more lithe, much more cat-like, and he says, uh, figure should never appear weightless. And, you know, in the final art, I don't think he had to worry about that because Batman never looks weightless. He looks like he weighs about a thousand pounds, all of it muscle and bone. And like he would kick your ass from here to Tokyo and back. It's pretty unbelievable. So I'm, I'm really happy that I finally got around to reading this and I like it a lot. Um, I'm curious to know, well, I did some Googling, of course, online to see what the reaction was. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, landmark, landmark. And um, I know some people think that it was overly violent and that it was a celebration of violence. But I really didn't get that feeling from it. So I'm kind of curious as to, to what everybody else thinks. So if you have some comments about Dark Knight Returns, drop me an email. Oh, I always forget to say my email address during the show. It's lena at troubledscience.com. So send me email. I love to get email and I apologize to anybody that I haven't written back to yet, but you know, I'm trying. So from the sublime to the ridiculous, as we so often move, this was a book that was given to me by David Arroyo, who has his own comic podcast now. And I listened to the first one. He's doing it all on Skype, which is really cool. His comic podcast is Comic Makers, and it's at comicmaker, singular, at blog.blogspot.com. So go over there and take a listen. Episode 2 is up now. It's really good. So he sent me a box of books, and this was one of them, and it's called DC's Greatest Imaginary Stories. And this was published in, oh gosh, 2005. So it's it's a very recent book. And I got to say, I am such a sucker for this kind of thing. I know that I've got a lot of these issues somewhere in boxes in my garage. And I just love these stories because there's something about them that totally busts loose. It just goes outside of everything. The writers and the artists went wild and just said, let's just do whatever we want to do. Of course, they're completely implausible. Of course, they're never going to happen, as they often say. (laughs) I love the disclaimers at the beginning of them. One morning in Metropolis on an imaginary day, which may or may not ever happen. And that's always put in bold, bold type. So what's in this book? Let's check it out. You've probably read some of these stories. Um, There's a Captain Marvel one called The Atomic War. There's The Second Life of Batman, written by Bill Finger. Mr. and Mrs. Clark, Superman Kent. The Death of Superman, which was 1961. Uh, Jimmy Olsen marries Supergirl. The Origin of Flash's Masked Identity. Batman's New Secret Identity. The Amazing Story of Superman Red and Superman Blue, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. The Three Wives of Superman. The Fantastic Story of Superman's Sons and Superman and Batman Brothers. So these were roughly all during the 60s, except for the first one, the Captain Marvel one, was 1946. And that's a pretty scary story about atomic war. I don't know. Not really suitable for kids. But the rest of these are just out and out crazy. And I love them. I just love everything about them. I love that they have giant plot holes. I love that they compress you know, weeks of exposition into a single panel. It's hilarious. It, there's, there's so much fun. I love them. In a way, they're so joyous because they refuse to be bound by the rules of logic and you just have to go with it. For example, in the story about Jimmy Olsen marrying Supergirl, he's able to marry Linda Lee Danvers because a piece of red K affects her and she forgets that she's Supergirl. Um, let's see. 
The red kryptonite instantly affected her. Not only has it robbed her of her superpowers, but it has destroyed her recollection that she'd ever been Supergirl. So she forgets she's Supergirl, and she dates Jimmy, and she falls in love with him, and they get married. Um, apparently, she didn't realize she was wearing a brown wig the whole time, which is a little odd, I have to say. Having worn wigs, you know, for, for performances and stuff, they're pretty stinking uncomfortable. So, you know, when she scratched her head, I wonder why she didn't just say... Gosh, I'm wearing a wig and I have blonde hair. How odd. Anyway, um, but, you know, let's just ignore that and keep going. <laughs> so that story is funny. Now, my most favorite story in this whole thing is the amazing story of Superman Red and Superman Blue. Not to be conflu- confused with the Red and Blue Superman stuff that came out a couple of years ago, which my geek buddy Logan told me about in which he's going to give me those comics so I can read them. This story is like total fanboy happy geek out moment and it made me laugh out of sheer pleasure all the way through because it's it's, there's a ridiculous premise in here about superman having to um oh he has to do the unsolved super problems that the people in candor tell him he's got to do so he sets up this machine to make him super smart but of course it backfires and it splits him into two they're not good and evil they're both good and they're both a hundred times smarter than the original superman So now that there are two of them and he's a hundred times smarter, he's able to solve every problem ever. And you can almost see the writers, or I, let me quickly check to see who the writer was on this because I'm not sure if it was Jerry Siegel or not. Um, it was Leo Dorfman. Okay. So you can see the writer kind of going down the list of all the problems that Superman's had and checking them off. And it is like going through a checklist. It's so much fun. So the first thing he has to do is to collect up all the pieces of kryptonite in the universe, which he does. And he makes a new planet out of it, new Krypton. And he takes Kandor there and he makes them big again. So now they're happy. They have a new world. Then he creates an anti-evil ray, which stops all crime on earth. So check that off the list. Um, even makes Brainiac good, even makes Lex Luthor good. Um, he finds a new planet for um, Lori and the the, Mer, the Mer people to go live on. He makes a, a new place for them and takes them off for Earth, so now they have their own really cool place to live. So, you know, check that off the list. Um, uses his anti-evil ray, and interestingly, it's shown um, being used in Cuba, there's Castro, and he says, open the jail doors, release all prisoners at once. Um, it doesn't say Cuba. It says on a Caribbean island. It also sh- shows Khrushchev, who's dumping all of the missiles into the sea, which I don't really think is a smart thing to do with nuclear missiles from Russia, but, you know, what do I know? Um, so Lex Luthor becomes good. Check that off the list. He invents a serum that will wipe all disease from the earth. So the two Supermans put it into the water, and in fact, it works. It works so well that Lex Luthor isn't bald anymore. How do you like them apples? The fan, the Phantom Zone. Criminals all come out of the Phantom Zone. Anti-Evil Ray makes them good. Check that problem off the list. Now comes the part that you were all waiting for. There are two Supermans. One of them marries Lois, and one of them marries Lana. And because they're both so happy now, Jimmy Olsen is able to marry Lucy. Check that all off the list. Man, we are getting so much done in a day. It's so cool. So Supergirl decides she wants to go live on New Krypton with all the other folks from Kandor. And Superman Red and and Lois, who are married now, and Comet and Crypto all go to live on New Krypton. And Superman Blue, who's married to Lana, stays on Earth and decides to devote his life to science and just make things even better. 
And, you know, they don't even miss each other that much because they got this cool little um, monitor screen that they can see what each other are doing on the different planets. And man, isn't that just everything you could ever want? Every loose end wrapped up, every little bitty thing taken care of, and everybody's happy. It's the happiest of happy endings. <laughs> and so, at the very end, the editor writes, What's your opinion, readers? Suppose this imaginary story really happened. Which couple do you think would be the happiness? Would it be Lois and Superman, or would it be Lana and Superman? Or would it be Lucy and Jimmy? I don't know. I think they're all pretty happy. But what a roller coaster ride. Oh my god, just so much fun. Following that is this weird story called The Three Wives of Superman. And I gotta ask, and I know that this question has been raised before, but why, when the women get married to Superman, do they become Mrs. Superman? I mean, do they actually take that as their legal last name? Because I would think it would be a little cumbersome if you had to sign all your checks, Mrs. Superman just seems a little weird to me. And like, what would happen when Supergirl got married? Would her husband have to change his name to Mr. Supergirl? Or would she become, you know, Supergirl Smith? I I think it just leads to a a lot of really weird things. Um, I should say that the art on the one that I was just talking about, Superman Red and Superman Blue, was Kurt Swan, of course, classic, classic Superman artist. Um, The next one is Three Wives of Superman. There's no writing credit on it, but it's, the art was by Kurt Schaffenberger, who is also a classic Superman artist. Um, and it's a really twisted story in which Superman marries serially. He marries Lois, he marries Lana, and he marries Lori. And they all die in hideous ways. Ow! <laughs> of course, it's all, you know, death by accident, but still, they all die. So I don't know about that. Um, a little strange. There's a really funny line of dialogue in here, though. And let me read the line of dialogue, and then I want to just raise a point, another reason why I love these stories so much. Um, In this story where Superman is marrying Lana, um, they're kind of worried about Lex Luthor because she was going to marry Lex. In fact, she says, um, you know, Lex, for some reason, decided to go straight, as he often does. But, you know, do we ever believe him? No. And she says, uh, oh, Lex proposes to her, and she accepts. And she says... She thinks to herself, Now that I know Superman will never marry me, I'll wed Luthor. It's better than being an old maid. We just won't say anything about that. I also have to say that Lana has a waist that looks like it's about eight inches around. So I don't know where she was keeping her internal organs. Maybe in a jar in a box somewhere. Um, So then later on, Lex takes off for parts unknown, and she, she asks her husband, Mr. Superman... You know, they sleep in twin beds. I have to mention that. In every marital scene that we ever see, they're always sleeping in twin beds. Like Mary Tyler Moore show. She says to Superman, whatever happened to Luthor? And he replies, he's become a space pirate, raiding other worlds. Someday I'll catch up with him and his new career will come to an end. But forget about him and put on these anti-gravity shoes. (laughs) I love that. It's so wacky. It's so crazy. You know, he's a space pirate, but honey, don't worry about that. Put on these anti-gravity shoes instead. It's just great. So one of the things I really love about these stories and why I like to go back and read Silver Age comics is that they are generally one story per issue, or at most maybe three issues. A lot of these multi-part ones weren't even multiple issues. They were just in a single issue, part one and part two, with some you know advertisements for grit in between. And I really miss that about comics, where a story can just take place in one issue, everything is telescoped, you know, there's exposition all over the place, and it's such 
crazy exposition. You just have to roll with it. But it's fun, you know? It's it's a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It happens. You accept it. You go along with it. And at the end, it's over. And sure, you press the reset button or there's some other stuff that maybe carries over into the next one. But everything is wrapped up. And I love the fact that everything happens at this incredibly fast clip, that there aren't panels and panels and panels of people talking to each other or like in Ultimate Spider-Man, panels and panels and panels of Peter and Mary Jane looking at each other when nothing is happening. You know, I don't need my comics to be that much like real life, honestly. So I treasure the Silver Age comics for the ability to make things happen crazily fast, like a roller coaster ride, like some other weird amusement park ride. I just think It's an experience that you have that makes it really fun to read comics. And that was the best part about reading this imaginary stories is that from beginning to end, it was so much fun. It didn't make me think, (laughs) except about how crazy it was. It didn't make me reflect on violence the way Dark Knight Returns did. It didn't make me um, go wild over the art the way Marvel's did. It was just fun, you know? It was like, like candy and I don't think there's enough candy in life. Let me go on record as stating that I don't think there's enough candy in life. So DC's Greatest Imaginary Stories, what a great book. It was my candy this week, and I was proud to be reading it on the train and having people staring over my shoulder to see what the hell I was looking at. talk about this these two books these extremely interesting books which I think you guys would probably dig um I was just thinking that having Ginger's music right there before I talk about it is a really good thing because the music goes a lot better with these books than it does with say oh I don't know DC's greatest imaginary stories for example These two books are called Indigo Animal. The first one is just Indigo Animal. The second one is called Indigo Animal and the Lawn Statuary Research Institute. They're by a woman named Rue Harrison, and they're published in Berkeley. Um, They're associated with a magazine about art that's called Works and Conversation, which I've been reading. It's really good. And um, I've been thinking about how to describe these books and what's in it, and 
I'm not really coming up with a good way to do it. I put the link to the site for these books on the blog here, and it's indigoanimal.com. And I would really say go and have a look at the art with this because I don't think I can do it justice by trying to describe with words what Rue does in these books. I will try. Um, The books concern an animal. Well, let me back up for a second and tell you what the books are like. They're little paperback books. They're probably like um, six by seven and a half or something. I like them because they're small and they fit in your hand really well and they feel nice. The first one, color, um, the cover is in color and then the interior is black and white, but the new one is all in color, which I'm really happy about because the colors are gorgeous, really beautiful primary colors. And each page is a, a panel, a drawing or a painting, and there are words that go along with each one of it. So the words are sometimes opposite the picture and sometimes they're below it and it kind of just keeps you informed on what's happening. So it's not like a comic book. It's more like um, a, a child's book with pictures and a story that goes along with it. And it could be a child's book. Um, I'd be interested to know what a, a child would think about a book like this. It doesn't really have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Neither of them do. In fact, the end of the second book, is it's very much a, to be continued, and we wonder what's going to happen next because there's a cliffhanger. I guess if you could say it's a cliffhanger. So the indigo animal is this blue, dark blue animal that walks on four feet. It looks kind of like it has um, an aardvark head, but it's a solid blue color, so you can't see its eyes and you can't see any of the detail on it. It's just this solid, flat blue color. But it thinks and it talks, and it's hands. I want to say hands because they don't look like paws. They look like human hands, and he he can pick things up um, and do things with them and manipulate objects. Um, so Indigo Animal lives in a little house in a neighborhood and wears a blanket on his back, a very colorful blanket. And we find out in this book that Indigo Animal really likes lawn statuary. And especially the classical type of lawn statuary that's maybe modeled on, you know, Greek or Roman themes and especially likes fountains and through a series of events in the first book comes to find that research on classical lawn statuary is is the thing that that jazzes him. I keep saying him, although there's no pronouns, there's no masculine or feminine pronouns. Indigo animal is always referred to either as indigo animal or just indigo. So indigo animal is either sexless or we're we're just not told, so it doesn't matter. And I'm sorry I'm saying he, and I'm going to switch it to she right now, just to be fair. So Indigo realizes that studying lawn statuary is what she really wants to do, and finds, in a miraculous turn of events, a little matchbook that advertises uh, the Lawn Statuary Research Institute at the end of book one, and decides that she's going to attend and to figure out what her true calling really is going to be. So that's the first book, is is the story of how she gets there. The illustrations are just amazing. Even though they're in black and white, you know, you get a picture on the cover in color, and you, you get a feel for what indigo looks like. And they're simple drawings. They have a lot of detail in them. There's a lot of stuff underlying it, which you have to understand for yourself. 
what the shapes of the statuary really mean and, and what's kind of going on and why everything happens the way it does. I think everybody gets a slightly different message out of it, but there's a lot of messages here about pursuing what you like and definitely a message about watching too much television and why it's bad for you and kind of how everything might just come together to lead you down the path that you were always meant to go down anyway. There are a lot of really funny things in it too. There's a whole little section about the specializations that you can do in lawn statuary research and each one has a little picture next to it. Um, So for example, country French lawn statuary is illustrated by a little drawing of a rabbit and a chicken with bows tied around their necks. And then the one for old English lawn statuary is a little drawing of um, a mace with a hole in the middle and some flowers coming out of it. Um, Then the modern one looks like a a representation of an atom, you know, and postmodern is like lawn statuary shaped like a computer. And then Neolithic is one shaped like Stonehenge. So there's just a lot of really interesting humor in all these things. And there's a whole section about Indigo trying to pick the correct blanket to wear to the first day of school, which is something I think we've all struggled with. In book number two, we find out what happens when Indigo actually makes it to the Lawn Statuary Institute. And we meet for the first time some other actual characters who talk. And um, it turns out that he, he finds a mentor of sorts in the form of a marmot who teaches the class on classical lawn statuary. And within the school itself, there's a pretty deep division between classical and modern research. And I think that speaks pretty heavily to the division between classical and modern anything, whether it's literature or art or philosophy. And there's definitely a message here about respecting the foundations and what came before without leaping into the postmodern and the ironic and just liking something because it's new. And Indigo's a really interesting creature because she is shy but has a lot of feelings and thoughts that she wants to express and, and finally finds the courage to express it and you feel really good when she finally speaks up and says what she's thinking and what's really on her mind and you know, you feel like she's really being true to herself. So for a character that's essentially this weirdo, flat blue thing that we don't quite know what it is, Indigo has a lot of personality. And I mean, when I got to the end of the second book, I was like, ah, I want to find out what happens, you know? It just ends and you're like, ah, we have to know what happens to Indigo and the Lawn Statuary Research Institute and um, the marmot, Dame Edna Marmot, who is his mentor. It's it's just, it creeps up on you. Um, so you can read it through for the story and then you can go back and you can look at all the beautiful pictures in here and kind of ponder what's happening and go through it a little more slowly. So I really, really like Indigo Animal. Thank you, Ginger, for giving them to me because I really do love them. They're beautiful little books. And I hope that other people will look at them and pick them up and ponder them and think about what they mean. And hopefully everybody can write to Rue and say, "Um, could you please get book number three out? Because I really need to know what happens to Indigo. So that's my highfalutin art recommendation along with DC's Greatest Imaginary Stories. And um, on this particular show, I'm going to close with a song about reincarnation. And it's really loud and has really screaming guitars. So if you don't like that sort of thing, you might not want to listen to the music. But it's one of my favorite songs. And it's a thing I say to myself an awful lot. 